Hey, I'm Glenn Robinson, and I've spent the last 30 years as a healthcare leader and overseeing large organizations. And before that, I was in the news business. And I'm Jacob Robinson, his son. I've spent the last five years building a business and learning lessons of leadership along the way. And this is our podcast, Chasing What Matters. On this podcast, we're going to interview leaders from all walks of life and hear their stories of successes and failures and what has made them become who they are today and how their faith and families played a role in their lives and leadership styles. During these interviews, we will be discussing things from business to politics, healthcare to nonprofit, and anything in between to find out how these leaders are chasing what matters in their work and personal life. So welcome to another episode of Chasing What Matters. Hey everyone, we're so glad you could join us for another episode of the Chasing What Matters podcast. I'm your co-host, Jacob Robinson. And I'm your other co-host, Glenn Robinson. Chuck Bentley is our guest today. He is the CEO of Crown Financial Ministries, a global Christian financial ministry founded by the late Larry Burkett. He is the host of two daily radio broadcasts, The Crown Money Minute and My Money Life, featured on more than 1,100 Christian music and talk stations in the U.S. And he's also the author of his most recent book, Seven Gray Swans, Trends That Threaten Our Financial Future. Chuck was awarded an honorary doctorate by Capital Seminary and Graduate School in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. He and his wife, Anne, both are graduates of Baylor University, and they've been married since 1978. They often can be found reading and spending time outdoors with their family at their home in Knoxville, Tennessee. And when not traveling the world together, they are out advancing Crown's mission and ministry. They have four adult sons, two daughters-in-law, and five grandchildren. Chuck, welcome to our show. Well, thank you, Glenn, and thank you, Jacob. It's honestly my privilege and pleasure to be with you. Well, we are we are honored uh, to to talk to you. So, uh, before we really dive into the, the the ministry that you run, let's just roll it all the way back to the beginning and tell us about growing up, uh, where that was, and and what your family life was like. I grew up in Iowa Park, Texas. That is a small town in North Texas, uh, northwest of Wichita Falls, up on the Red River. Uh, my family all comes from that area. Iowa Park was a town of 2,000 people at that time. Uh, we had one policeman and one uh, blinking traffic light. Wow. So it was a very small town. Absolutely no forms of entertainment. Uh, I mean, no skating rink or, or city swimming pool, no movie theater, absolutely nothing. So it was an interesting place to grow up, uh, primarily a football town. We had uh, a, a long legacy of great football teams. So my family is, uh, I have a wonderful father. My mother is now uh, home with the Lord, but I had two sisters and a brother, and we had a very simple, nice, middle-class lifestyle. Now, Chuck, what took your family there to Iowa Park? Well, it was, uh, my father was born on an oil lease in Electra, Texas, uh -huh. back in the Texaco boom days. And he was the only one of seven children to graduate from high school. He went on to the Marine Corps and then uh, graduated uh, from college with a degree in accounting and got a professional job in the oil business. So moving to Iowa Park was a big step up for our family to to have uh, a dad who was a professional, and he just liked the small town living. His job was in Wichita Falls, uh, but he just liked a small area and wanted us to grow up in a small town. 
You know, it's it's interesting uh, about uh, Texans, right? Uh, there's a lot of cities in Texas that have other state names, you know, or, or other big cities. And I was talking to a friend of mine who's from South Dakota, uh, and he's from Rapid City. And for him, when somebody says, hey, where are you from? Originally, he just says Rapid City, thinking that you immediately think South Dakota, right? But he go, <laughs> he said every time somebody goes, so is that in West Texas or is that in the Panhandle? He's like, no. Texans. Uh, there are other cities outside the state of Texas, so it is funny uh, <laughs> hearing another one with a, with another state associated to it. You know, Jacob, I tell people uh, when I introduce myself sometimes that uh, you can always tell a Texan. You just can't tell them much, and that gets a laugh every time. <laughs> I like well, that. I like that. Well, both Jacob and I are transplants, but uh, we're we're kind of like the old bumper sticker. You know, we got here as fast as we could, and uh, we've had the pleasure to call Texas home now for goodness, almost thirty years, and so it feels it feels like home to us. We sure claim it. Uh, well, well, Chuck, tell us how did you wind up choosing Baylor University? Well, in some ways, Baylor chose me. I really didn't have a long-range plan at all. I wasn't even sure that I would go to college, and if I did, it would probably be uh, over in uh, Wichita Falls, just going to the small university, or at that time, just a small college, uh, and sort of muddling my way through. But I had a friend that I'd played football with uh, named Dr. Steve Watson, and Steve was the only person I knew that uh, had gone off to a big school like Baylor, and he went there to play football. He was a phenomenal football player and also to study to become a doctor. He ended up becoming a plastic surgeon. But Steve called me and he said, I think you would really like coming to Baylor. And will you come down for the weekend? And so I drove from Iowa Park to Waco uh, and uh, thought I would just spend the weekend with Steve. Well, it turned out that his roommate at the time was Neil Jeffries. Uh, oh, wow. And Neil Jeffries was quarterback of the Baylor football team. And uh, just a wonderful believer. And that weekend, those two guys had such an influence on me. I knew whatever it took, I was going to try to end up at Baylor. And it was a truly pivotal decision in my life. Baylor was uh, super helpful for me to grow as a person and as a believer and as a leader. Uh, I said earlier when I was getting to meet Jacob that I ended up becoming the student body president at uh, Baylor. And that's you know, from a guy who stepped on campus and only knew one other person, and it was bigger than the town I grew up in. Wow. So it was a, a major part of my development as a leader. That's awesome. Well, well, holidays are always interesting around our house because Jacob is a, a former student body uh, uh, president at A&M, and his brother, Josh, went to A&M. But uh, our son-in-law, Jordan, uh, followed in your footsteps, Chuck, and he wound up being a student body president at Baylor. And so there's there's usually a little bit of discussion around the Big 12 and the SEC around our Thanksgiving and Christmas table, for sure. I'm, I'm sure there is. I I uh, after Baylor, I applied for a graduate school at Texas A&M and was accepted and thought I would get my MBA there because we love A&M. And, and then I got accepted to Baylor Law School and uh, had a choice to make and decided I would go to Baylor Law School. And right before uh, that happened, I decided I wasn't going to law school either. So uh, I have a lot of uh, great friends from A&M and I I have, uh, uh, I know all the jokes, Jacob, but I like the school so much I never tell the jokes. 
Well, I, we appreciate that. We appreciate that. Uh, as as the real Christian university in the state, we we greatly appreciate that. I uh, hear you. But, I hear you. <laughs> uh, no, well, okay, that's that's interesting. So so my next question was going to be, you know, your your time after Baylor. So okay, so you, you were going to get an MBA, then you, then you thought about law school, and then you deviated and did something else. Tell us about those years after Baylor and and what you did as as setting out in your professional career. Well, my father uh, was in the oil and gas business and oil and gas exploration. And the oil boom uh, was happening at that time. About 1979, the price of oil was skyrocketing. Uh, and my dad called and said, hey, why don't you just forego law school and come to work for me and help us build the family business? And so that was the decision, really a fork in the road for my life. And uh, we went back to uh, the area where I was born, and I went to work for my dad in the oil and gas business. And we did that until it got, till the price of oil fell to... <laughs> You know, epic lows, I think about $14 a barrel. And uh, my brother and I both worked for dad at that time. And from there, we both transitioned out of the family business uh, voluntarily uh, just to help dad uh, at that time. And I I went into real estate and uh, my brother went into uh, uh, venture capital. So I stayed in real estate for a season and then ultimately started a company that I was trying to take public uh, when uh, the Lord intervened in my life. So that's a big part of my testimony today was the juncture of you know, trying to go public with a company that I'd started and then this call to do what I'm doing today. Well, and before we get too far away from those Baylor days, that's also where you met your wife, Ann. Well, uh, you know, the greatest takeaway was not my degree at Baylor. It was <laughs> meeting Ann and uh, getting uh, acquainted with her and ultimately becoming my wife. We met in accounting class, and we made the opposite grade on the first exam in that <laughs> class. And, I, know, uh, I know nothing about that, that part. <laughs> well, she, she made a 95, and my grade was inverted of that. And so I've been accused of dating her in order to pass accounting uh, at Baylor. Uh, she went on to uh, teach accounting at the graduate level at Baylor, so she was very good at it, and I needed her help to uh, to get out of the basics of accounting. <laughs> Not my strength at all. Yes, I, uh, Melissa, my wife is a CPA, and so she took a, t- a different level of accounting than, than uh, us business minors uh, did, and so I, I miserably failed uh, my first accounting test, and I said, okay, listen, you know, there's hope she can, she can help tutor me for the second one. And, uh, I, you know, I think she probably gave up on me, um, you know, maybe a couple hours into tutoring of like, this is not going to go well. So I went to class, uh, to take the test, felt decent about it, opened up the test booklet, immediately closed it, walked it to the professor. And she said, are you done? I said, nope, I'm going to go drop the class. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, and that, that was the end of the accounting class for me. Boy, Jacob, well, you and I have a lot in common. We're both student body presidents, and, and, and accounting is not our I, thing. That's right. That's right. And married uh, smarter uh, uh, women uh, yeah, than, yeah. than us. Well, I got to throw my hat into that ring because Rhonda and I were both uh, headed back uh, to finish our college degrees uh, in the evening, and uh, we met in a class, and uh, and uh, our our test scores were were very similar to yours uh, and 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 Anne's. Chuck, uh, Rhonda was definitely the smartest one, and uh, and and she helped me. Uh, I think pull a C in that class. I think she, uh, she definitely got the A, and so um, uh, not not probably some of my proudest moments, but also some of the 
proudest moments from the sense that's how we met our spouses. And so very, very grateful for that. Well, speaking of Rhonda, she and I were introduced uh, to the forerunner of Crown Ministries a number of years ago. Back then, it was called Christian Financial Concepts, CFC. And Rhonda and I learned so much by going to classes at our church, and so much so that it helped us in managing our our resources that we later went on to North Georgia to be trained at the, as a CFC financial counselor. And for a number of years, we were able to work with couples and especially pastors and ministers and their families, just sharing with them what we had learned from um, Christian financial concepts later to become Crown. And and Chuck, I'm just really curious. Tell us how you became connected with Crown Ministries. Well, first of all, thank you, Glenn, for your service with Crown and for that testimony. We're always delighted to hear that God's used our organization in ways that we would not have known. When I was invited to do the podcast, I wouldn't have expected that I would hear somebody with a Crown story, but so grateful for that. Thank you so much. I was uh, uh, very stubborn and strong-willed and uh, determined in my life to measure success externally by how much money I made, and that was really the driving force in my life. I felt like if I could make a lot of money quickly that it would uh, satisfy my drive and ambition as well as make for a happy home life and family. Uh, I thought my wife would be super proud of me, and all those things were driving me to uh, really try to prove myself in business. And I have to admit, I, 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 I'm not real good at it. I've, I've had some limited success in business, but uh, in comparison to others, uh, I was just striving to do uh, what I thought I should do, which was hit, you know, hit a home run, hit one out of the park. And uh, my wife kept telling me something was wrong with me. And I don't know if you guys received that real well, but especially when it's just a, gen- a general term, you know, I, I wasn't sure what she meant by that, but she, she said she loved me and most days she liked me and uh, she just thought something was wrong with me. And I took offense to that and she couldn't verbalize what she, what she thought was wrong. Uh, but one day she said, uh, hey, there's a class offered at our church that I think you need to go to. And she said that specific to me, not a we, but Chuck, you mm. need to go to. And we were attending church there in the Dallas area where we lived at the time. And our pastor was Chuck Swindoll. Oh, no. And the class was called Crown Financial Ministries. She uh, called the guy, the volunteer leading it and uh Ask if classes were available, and he said yes, but I'm only taking people who will commit to lead a crown class in the future. And without asking me if I would go or lead a class, she signed <laughs> us up and said, I, I promise you, if you'll let him in the class, he'll teach one. So I, I entered the class, Glenn and Jacob, and I truly was defensive I was uh, overconfident. I was busy. I was trying to take a company public. I was sort of counting my eggs before they were hatched. My ship was coming in, and so I was on a roll. And I just didn't want to be there. And that's when God caught me off guard. Uh, We started memorizing scripture of what the Bible says about money. 
learning that everything I believed was inconsistent with God's word. And I came under conviction in that study uh, that I was an idolater. And I admitted to the Lord that I loved money, and it had taken control of my life. And I, I, I just will pause there and say, I'm the only person that I know that has ever had that type of encounter with the Lord. It's quite unique. But I, I realized that I loved money, and it was controlling me. And that's what my wife knew that she couldn't verbalize. She knew something was not sitting well with her, but I was talking about the lifestyle that I wanted, the financial goals that I wanted to achieve, and how I wanted to spend the money on ourselves, and uh, I was expecting her to sort of go along with that, and she didn't want to go along with that. And the more successful I became, the more unhappy she became, mm. and so I had a real dilemma and in this Bible study, when I saw myself in the biblical mirror, that God did not have control of my life, without her having to tell me, I repented and I told the Lord that I was sorry for allowing money to control my life and that I would never do that again and ask him to forgive me. And then I asked her to forgive me for the way I treated her because I wanted her to go along with my plan. And she had dug her heels in. But the study united us. And back to your original question, we philosophically aligned on what we believed about money. And that was the depth that we needed to bring intimacy back to our marriage. And so the first thing that happened is we got closer as a couple. The second thing is we started radically changing the way we manage money. And the third thing is we started volunteering, as she had promised, to lead these groups <laughs> for other people. And through that, uh, to my great shock, uh, they contacted me and said, hey, we've got an opening for somebody to work for us in Dallas, Texas, and we want you to do it. Wow. And uh, I said, well, that would take a miracle because I'm a busy person and I've got this company I'm trying to take public. And short story is... Uh, that miracle occurred, and in the year 2000, I exited my business and joined staff with Crown as a local volunteer, not a volunteer, local staff member in Dallas, Texas. That was the beginning. Wow. wow. Now, did uh, back to your company that you were trying to take public, did that ever happen? No, it did not. I, I, I started a dot-com company connecting Fortune 500 companies to trade uh, FF&E assets, furniture, fixture, mm -hmm. and equipment. Coming from a real estate background, I saw a niche in the market that could uh, help people save a lot of money. The concept worked, but uh, the dot-com bubble burst, and any company that was trying to do online transactions at that time, if you didn't have the staying power, you just couldn't survive through the, the bubble bursting. And so we... Uh, we were able to close the company, and someone else later picked up the concept, and their, their ship came in. It was <laughs> my ship was wrong timing. Definitely well, a great idea, though. It was yeah, a great, great idea. idea. Well, I want to I want to um, pause for a second and see if I can uh, derail the conversation and circle back to something you said. Uh, and I'm going to formula uh, formulate this question as it's coming out of my mouth, which is always a super safe thing to do. 
Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think uh, individuals of all ages, right? But but I'm gonna I'm gonna speak to earlier on in their career because that's uh, by definition where I'm at uh, in, in in the in, in the hopefully the longevity of my work life. I think there's this struggle as believers <clears throat> where you have. Um, extremes, right? Uh, I think there is the prosperity gospel movement, which I, I personally do not subscribe to of, um, you know, God's just waiting to give you millions of dollars. If you would just believe enough and, and, and we all know how that, um, is, is incorrect. Uh, and then you've got the other side of the pendulum that says, Hey, listen, God is anti-money and, and God is, if, if you are really following Jesus, you don't have any money, period. And I know as, as a, a believer, there is this constant pull in the business world of you want to be successful and you, and you want to do really well at your career and you want to provide and you want to bless. And, and there is a slippery slope where that can become uh, something where it tips over into you're just saying those things because you really want to have money. But there also is really good things that you can do with money. And and so if, if you would for a second speak to um, and again, I know everybody probably struggles with it, but maybe a, a younger audience that is starting out in their career, uh, younger family, trying to figure out how to um, uh, focus uh, godly uh, their their beliefs around this desire uh, to be successful. Does that is that does that make sense? What I'm, I'm yeah, getting I, at? Yeah, for sure, Jacob. I understand it. And I lived in that tension, and I actually. I failed at living in that tension. The tension that you're describing is between one extreme, which is the prosperity gospel that basically uh, we hear a lot of today that God is demanded, uh, we can demand upon God to provide us wealth. And, and and some people even teach that he promises that to all people. I think it's completely contradictory to Scripture. But the other end of the extreme is as well, which is the poverty gospel, which declares that possessions and money are evil and only greedy bad people have it. Right. And uh, you're seeing a lot of those uh, philosophies adopted in the culture. I, I, I could go on and on about the damaging ideologies in our culture today about that negatively... Uh, condemning people who have wealth and resources. I think it's wrong. Uh, But the middle ground and where I found peace was this, that the gospel presents the message of stewardship. And that that says that God owns everything, that we came with nothing and we will leave with nothing. In this interim period, we're to work really hard and to do well and be successful with uh, how we work and produce for our family. So we we recognize that we've got a responsibility to take care of. But that when God owns it, then we're his steward. And his metric is faithfulness with money, not how successful you are. And that's where I was able to shift my energy and my uh, belief system, Jacob, is I decided that my calling was to be faithful with whatever God provided through the work or labor of my hands not to try to accumulate more and more and more. And uh, when I made that shift, it broke the materialistic grip that money had over my life. I, I, I gave up the goal of accumulating more than other people. And I simply said, Lord, I'll be faithful with whatever you give me, whether it's a lot or a little. And that's the role of a steward. And so uh, he actually commends the faithful stewards for managing a lot. 
there's a spectrum there, and some are given a lot to manage, and some are given middle amount, and some uh, smaller amounts. But we all have the same standard, which is faithfulness. And that liberated me to work hard, to do excellent job at what I was called to do, but also not to allow it to take a hold of my heart again. Mm, that's good. I wish our listeners could have uh, caught, uh, but we just didn't hit record button soon enough. But uh, Chuck and Jacob and I were sharing uh, Larry Burkett stories uh, uh, from from yesteryear, and 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 Jacob's question uh, popped another one of Larry's stories into my mind, and it, and it ties in and dovetails very well with what what you're saying, Chuck. And and at one of the conferences, Larry was teaching a very wealthy person came up to them and had been feeling guilty about how they had been blessed abundantly. Uh, with with a lot of money and and this that question of poverty versus uh, wealth and 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 Larry said you know just a couple of rules one make sure you're living within your means uh, there's nothing wrong with having money uh, because God places believers at all different levels of the economic spectrum and but there's also a requirement that comes with that and that is is that wherever God has placed us. We need to feel comfortable with that. We don't need to live above our means, but we also must be salt and light wherever we are. And so are you being salt and light is the real uh, probing question that uh, all of us must be asked at times. Well, you and I could get on a roll telling Larry's stories, and uh, (laughs) certainly they've impacted my life as well. But the piece that uh, you're describing there is uh, God unequally distributes uh, wealth and resources. He does it on purpose. It's his prerogative. He can do it however he wants to do it. And no one should ever feel guilty for experiencing abundance. Uh, God says all hard work leads to profit. And uh, the, the challenge comes when that abundance happens is to what next? And if you look at a healthy economy, both personally and a macro basis, after work produces a surplus, then you have a responsibility to give. And giving is the buffer that prevents money from becoming an idol. Uh, you, you literally renounce its control over you by saying, I'm willing to give you away. <laughs> you don't own me or control me. And I'm going to bless other people and honor God and trust him with my future by becoming more and more generous. Well said, Chuck. Well yeah. said. Well, while we're on the note of, of talking about you know your role at Crown Ministries, tell our listeners just just educate us on uh, exactly what Crown Ministries uh, does and and what you're involved in uh, all throughout the, the country. Well, thank you. We're committed since 1976 to teach the principles and practices of God's economy, and we like to say God's economy is just radically different than man's. Most people know man's economy and man's economic principles, and we. Uh, try to help people understand what they are and how to actually apply them to their lives. And so we do that through uh, building training centers, producing materials. We have a very large media outreach and then holding events where we train other leaders. Uh, We do that uh, not only in the United States, but also throughout the world. My tenure at Crown has been spreading our work across the globe. It was not uncommon for me before COVID to visit five continents a year. Uh, I've helped plant crown in more than 70 countries, uh, most of the major cities of the world. And and so we uh, enjoy a global outreach serving to help businesses and families and churches 
apply God's financial principles to their lives. Wow. Wow. Now, Chuck, if someone who is listening wants to learn more, wants to get involved, uh, wants to do something as basic of like, gosh, I know we should be living on a budget. We've never been living on a budget. How do we go about doing this? How can they tap into the resources at Crown Ministries? Well, we have one of the easiest web addresses I think God could have ever given us. It's crown.org. It's just crown.org. And we uh, get lots of web traffic, people looking for things like free budgeting materials, which we have, uh, calculators, whether it's to get out of debt or to uh, refinance or pay down a mortgage. We have lots of materials for people to learn how to apply their finances, online courses, We have a program called Money Dates, where we devised a way for couples to have a sequence of dates where they talk about financial topics and bring them together in unity. So we've got more than 130 products available, some for purchase, but many of them are free. Uh, But thanks for asking, Glenn. They're all at crown.org. Perfect. And we'll have uh, all that in the show notes below for for our listeners. So if you're listening now, uh, you can click that link and it'll take you right there. I know our listeners have heard me say this before, but it, it's really neat to observe institutions that are larger than ourselves and how God places different leaders with different skill sets and different talents at different times within the life of that institution. And And I think that Larry would be so proud of what you're doing, Chuck, and how you're continuing to grow the work that he began in Georgia uh, that now literally is around the world. And, uh, and, and it's just, it's fascinating. Fascinating to watch. It's fascinating to see how just biblical truths uh, translate into transforming lives. Well, thank you very much. I, I've seen those principles work in, in, in situations that are unbelievable. Most of us uh, haven't had the opportunity to see them up close. I've had a front row seat to it, uh, watching God use our ministry around the world uh, inside of China. I was uh, picked up by, I've been to China many times before it got more difficult to be there. Larry's uh, bestseller called Business by the Book absolutely swept through China as they opened up to the gospel. And their number one interest was, okay, uh, how do I do money the right way? Because they were making so much money. And uh, this guy picked me up. If you don't mind, I'll deviate onto this story. It's just amazing to me and so honoring to Larry's life work. But he uh, it was my driver, and I was in the back seat of a van, and there were a couple of other people in our entourage and a translator. And at one of the stops about midday, the driver said, can I talk to our guest? And the translator asked me, he said he wants to talk to you before you go to your next meeting. I said, sure. Well, I thought he was just driving the car, right? And he turned around and he said, I'd like to tell you my story. I came to faith in Christ through Business by the Book Seminar inside China. Wow. And uh, since that time, I've led 12 people in my family to the Lord. Mm-hmm. And I'm 44 years old. I work for our family business, and I'd never given any money to anybody for any reason in my whole life. Mm-hmm. Uh, but through your ministry, I decided to give to my first gift to the church. And I gave a million U.S. dollars as my first gift to thank God for saving me. And I said to my driver, when did you go to this seminar? And he said, 11 months ago. Wow. And uh, that gives you some idea of the impact of Larry's life work 
uh, around the world. It's just amazing. Their their family business manufactured fireproof fireproof glass that goes in all the high rise buildings. And if you've been there, <laughs> they sell a lot of fireproof glass. Wow. Uh, but just a completely transformed person. Well, I've got to ask, did you ever figure out a guy that has that type of wealth, that type of work, and how he wound up being your driver? He was volunteering for the—he thought I was some sort of celebrity or important person. He was hoping if he volunteered to drive, he could meet me. And he was just that humble. And I said, my goodness, you know, I'm not a big deal. You didn't need to, you know, come out and drive for me. I'd be happy to say hello to you. (laughs) Uh, But there's just that kind of humility uh, among the business leaders there. And then on the opposite end of the spectrum, we've seen God's principles help some of the poorest people on earth. And I find that uh, some of my greatest joy is seeing these principles help people escape uh, uh, generational poverty. Well, Chuck, you're so busy. You're also the founder and the executive director of the Christian Economic Forum. Tell us more about this ministry. Well, I was teaching in Switzerland a number of years ago, and I was getting prepared to leave Zurich. And as I did, it looked like the whole world was coming into Switzerland as I was leaving. And they were headed to Davos. All the drivers had signs up for Davos this and Davos that. And I started to explore the World Economic Forum's purpose and to try to determine if they had any spiritual offerings or, or basis for what they were trying to achieve in the world. And it turns out that they don't, and nor were they particularly interested in, <laughs> in bringing faith into the conversation. And uh, I had had the privilege of traveling the world, and without fail, when I would go to a new country, the people who were greeting me and welcoming our ministry to their countries were some of the top Christian business leaders in those nations. And I started to think, God's got all these business leaders, and historically it's been Christians who have built the schools, who've built the hospitals, who've built the roads, the infrastructures, who've had the breakthrough in science and technology and medicine and new products and new services. And yet we're not as organized as the World Economic Forum. We're, we're fragmented, even though we've, we're responsible for so much good, so much wonderful uh, output. I thought, I need to find somebody to start an organization to bring God's global leaders together to talk about macroeconomic issues. And I looked and looked and looked until finally I was exhausted and the Lord said, you're that somebody because, you know, you're not qualified. (laughs) I couldn't even be qualified to be a part of it. but, But he said, I want you to start it. And so in 2011, I started the organization with the premise that God's entrepreneurs are great producers. They, and oftentimes they're not recognized for producing. They're not recognized for the importance of creating jobs, for creating uh, investable assets to help the economy grow. Uh, they're looked at as uh, giving machines. They're looked at as we need to find something else for them to do besides the work they're already trying to do. And so I wanted to start the organization to honor those uh, God's producers in the for-profit and not-for-profit sectors. We call them high achievers with a higher calling. And we started in 2011 meeting in locations around the world, better known as our global event, 
and we discuss God-inspired solutions to these problems of the world. And it's just been a huge blessing to me and the people who participate. Well, here's another Larry Burkett story, but uh, here you are carrying on this tremendous work through the Christian Economic Forum, because I personally have heard Larry say several times uh, when he was living that the Christian church in America neglected its duties when it turned its back truly on orphans and widows for the most part. And we just uh, turned it over to make it the government's responsibility. And and here you are really trying to rectify that and try to move things back so that uh, Christians and our message can really impact people's lives in a meaningful way. So thank you, Chuck, for what you're doing there. Well, it's been my great privilege. I've uh, who wouldn't want to hang out with some of these incredible, gifted, talented leaders from all over the world? One of my dearest friends in the world came from China. He was a, a an economist, a Ph.D. in economics, working for the Chinese government, sent to the United States to try to discover on an academic basis the source of our prosperity. And as an avowed atheist and an avowed communist, he came to this country, spent six months doing academic research, went back to his job and said, I've got good news and bad news. The good news is I know the secret to their prosperity. The bad news is Christianity, not the Mm. prosperity gospel, but all of the elements that Christianity brings to bear to make an economy run. I don't know if you've read Dr. Rodney Stark's book called The Victory of Reason. But Dr. Stark also uh, has the same premise that it is Christianity that led to the rise of reason and that capitalism is reason applied to markets. And uh, he just does a brilliant analysis that did not promote in the prosperity gospel, but the fact that Christianity provides a common moral system for building trust. It provides a system that punishes corruption. It provides a system that voluntarily closes the wealth inequality gap. All of those things came from this atheist named Dr. Peter Shaw, and he gave his life to Christ as a result of that economic research and is one of the leading Christian spokesperson in his nation to this day. And the two of us uh, became friends through this effort to uh, defragment this space at the Christian Economic Forum level. So it's my privilege, but thank you for those kind words. Well, you know, I I have uh, I know you're familiar enough with our story. Um, you know, as my dad was saying, when the church has in the past missed some opportunities, and there's a whole host of reasons of why certain churches have missed opportunities. Um, but but I think it is interesting living here in Houston uh, when we had Hurricane Harvey a couple of years ago. The amount of money I, I can't remember the number off the top of my head that was deployed back into the city uh, by churches was exponentially uh, larger uh, than, than government entities or, or other things like that. And, and it was getting quick work done. It was, it was uh, churches showing up and being the hands and feet uh, of Jesus. And that was a very sad, uh, but very, in a, in a take this the right way, a very awesome experience to watch, uh, you know, and, and we see that, uh, all over the world uh, from time to time, but uh, but I, I applaud you for getting these leaders together. You know, I'm I'm uh, become all too close and all too familiar uh, with the the church missing taking care of the disabled community, and and I think it 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 lies on the shoulders of 
uh, leaders that are saying, hey, we can we can get behind that. I was telling somebody last week, one of my crazy dreams is I'd love to uh, go around and, and help churches not have an excuse uh, to be able to provide the resources for, for those families and for those kids. Because a lot of times the excuse is, well, we just don't have the money. Um, and, and so... Um, we can talk offline about how we change the world that way. But, uh, Let's go, but, Jacob. Okay, yeah. You're my kind of guy. Look, but, take on uh, those big problems and look for a God-inspired solution because the church does have the money. I, I think the church is the greatest mutual fund ever created. God's got his people in every sector of the economy. In every nation, right. he has his people in every sector of the economy. That's right. And so the money is there. Uh, it's the desire. It's the will. It's it's people like yourself, Jacob, who stand up and say, uh, let's recognize uh, the issue and, and the opportunity. Every problem presents a great opportunity. That's right. That's right. Well, speaking globally, uh, let, let's continue to talk about the, the long list of things that you're doing to, to change the world. Uh, you, you serve on the board of, of Foundations for Farming in Zimbabwe. Tell us about this organization. Well, I want to try to make it brief because I'm, I'm, I realize that I'm getting too excited about what we're talking about. You're doing great. Yeah. Well, uh, we started teaching uh, the world's poor, the least of these, how to manage money. And they very politely uh, tapped us on the shoulder and said, could you start a little bit earlier in the equation? We don't have any money. Uh, we don't have anything to manage. We're subsistence farmers. We're living on next to nothing. And we would you help us to earn an income to know how? And so we found a partner uh, in Zimbabwe, two guys who lost all that they had under Robert Mugabe. Under land reform policy, he took away the farms of the two biggest, two, close to the biggest commercial farmers in Zimbabwe. It'd be like robbing Bill Gates and Warren Buffett in this country, practically. He took everything away from them. And uh, as opposed to getting bitter, they said, uh, well, we're going to stay and we're going to serve those who mistreated us. And we're going to take our knowledge and help the poor know how to be better farmers. Uh, And so they took the income side of the equation, helping people improve their income. And we took the management side and I like to say we became like chocolate and peanut butter. It's been an incredible combination of helping people overcome poverty with the resources they already have. And our disruptive model is that we don't give people anything uh, because we believe unless they're faithful with what they have, they'll never leave poverty behind. Uh, I would like to just celebrate what those guys have done in our partnership. Uh, Last year during COVID, they took our methodology and the government asked for permission to spread it throughout the country for fear that they might all starve during COVID if they couldn't produce anything. And the government took our model and trained 2.2 million small-scale farmers last year. Wow. And it's the first time in 20 years uh, that Zimbabwe has produced not only enough to feed themselves without foreign aid, but they had a 1 million ton surplus of grain produced through the small-scale poor farmers and now can net export grain. It's been an absolute economic miracle on a national scale. And I'm calling for, and so are other journalists now, for them to be considered for the Nobel Prize. So it is a super exciting uh, breakthrough that is nation-changing. And 
I'm the kind of guy that dreams about those things. I always talk about them. But we can truly pause here and say we've seen it happen. Uh, People who were in danger of starving are now living in surplus and abundance because of God's goodness. I mean, they will tell you uh, the greatest thing ever happened to them was losing all of their own wealth and deciding that God was calling them to help other people prosper. And they have done it in a remarkable ways. I am just along for the ride. I just love them dearly. Uh, they have impacted my life by their example of humility and uh, service. Can you imagine someone taking your business away from you mm. and you turning around and helping them prosper? Uh, that's what these guys have done. Wow. Well, Chuck, thank you for being a part of this whole restoration work that's going on in Africa. Because if you look at the history of that continent, it's it's a sad history of so many other uh, uh, nations around the world taking advantage of Africa, uh, coming to Africa and pretending that they're there to help. And then all they do is simply take the resources, the minerals, the jewels, uh, all, all of those things away. And, um, and, and now we're seeing more and more organizations, many of those faith-based, many of those Christian that are pouring back in and giving back to Africa. And, uh, and, and thank you for doing that. I've had the privilege of being a part of Restoration Gateway, and we've opened a 150-bed hospital in Uganda, uh, right in the middle of nowhere. But uh, it's because of being in the middle of nowhere that so many people around there had no access to health care. And so Great organizations um, like this one that you're involved in of uh, foundations for farming in Zimbabwe and Restoration Gateway and and it goes on and on of uh, we uh, had uh, Mario Zanstra um, and uh, and his organization and the great work that they're doing in Zambia and mm-hmm. and it just uh, continue to keep up the good work and so thank you for what you're doing there. Well, I know Mario's work there in Zambia. I was there when that work got started and got off the ground and have a lot of great friends working in that area. He's a super leader. Uh, I haven't heard that podcast yet, but I intend to listen to that one. Uh, well, uh, he was a, a good interview. Uh, he's a great guy. Yeah. Well, uh, one of the reasons that we were so fortunate and blessed to get you to say yes is because you've written a book that uh, we want to tell our listeners about. And and I'm reading your latest book, Seven Gray Swans, which are trends that threaten our financial future. And uh, in fact, we were talking before we started recording today about just how timely some of these topics are that they're happening right there. They're a part of today's Wall Street Journal, literally. We're recording this interview on uh, Monday, May 24th. It'll air in a couple of weeks. And so go back and look at what happened this past weekend uh, just to Bitcoin, for instance, and uh, which is one of the seven gray swans. Chuck, tell our listeners uh, about this fascinating subject and, and what really inspired you to write about these potential financial threats. Well, I'm a, I'm a novice, aspiring uh, economist from the standpoint of not making economic forecast, but I believe that economics is a study in human behavior. If you follow the money, you understand what people prioritize and what they value and uh, what they think and even what they believe. And that's something that Larry taught me. He said, if you uh, show me your checkbook, I can uh, tell you what you value in life. And that we're writing our autobiography by our financial choices. So I naturally gravitate to look at financial trends and things that are happening around money. 
Uh, I'm sure you remember uh, that when you analyze a deal, you say you the first thing you say is follow the money, you know, and you'll understand the deal much much better. Well, and there's so, one other there's one other bit of wisdom that goes along with that, and that is when they say it's not about the money, it it's is. all about the money. Right, right. There's that's very very true. Uh, and so I, I like to talk about these things. And, of course, being a part of the Christian Economic Forum, I'm around really uh, well-informed, bright people, and we'll discuss these. And I started to make a list of the things that I was tracking, and some of my friends said, why don't you write that down? And so I wrote them down, and it became this little booklet called Seven Gray Swans, which so far has been the first book that I've written. I think this may be number eight for me that is selling in multiple copies. It's a small, easy read, but people like to share it uh, because it simplifies a lot of complex things that uh, we're, we have a lot of dissonance about. I talk about a gray swan is an unlikely event that we tend to ignore. Uh, it's a derivative of the term black swan, which is a massive unknown event that will be devastating. But a gray swan is something is in play. It's in play, but we think, well, it's probably not going to happen, so I'm going to ignore it. Uh, similar to COVID, you know, we didn't think a pandemic would sweep through here. Uh, we knew it could. We knew the Spanish flu had done that, but, you know, it was out of sight, out of mind. So these, this is my list, and it's not an exhaustive list, but my list of those kind of things. I just want people to be aware that we think that our government is going to realize that we're spiraling out of control with our spending and our deficits. The truth is many of them believe this theory that that will not happen. Well, if you were to stop the average person on the street who is not an economist and just say, is this possible for you to implement MMT in a country like America, you would say, no, you can't do that. It, it, it just makes no sense. You can't just create money out of thin air and make it worth something. But yet we're actually doing it. And uh, in fact, uh, you talked about Monopoly in your book. I love the illustration that if you play the game Monopoly, where you can just really just continue to rob the bank and continue to float loans and continue to just have an endless supply of Monopoly money, the game itself will play out in front of your very eyes that That's it right. is it is a financial disaster. It is. It's a financial shipwreck. Uh, inflation happens. Uh, you know, when we did it in real monopoly, all of a sudden your rent that you're charging to, if you land on boardwalk or park place is astronomical and you have to borrow money from the bank to pay it back. And you just get in this crazy cycle of debt and inflation, debt and inflation, more money supply, more money supply. And it's musical chairs until somebody says, I want off. I don't want to do this anymore. And that's when they lose confidence in fiat currency. You know, all Bitcoin is today is a metric for how little confidence people have in fiat currency. That's the that that's the simplest way to describe the phenomenon of a cryptocurrency is it's an alternative to fiat. And or at least it's perceived to be. I'm not sure that it is. I'm quite concerned about it, in a matter of fact. But it is a gauge of the fear that we have with the oversupply of money today. And, and rightfully so. We all know that uh, we're printing way too much money. 
Well, let's talk about Bitcoin because it's been in the news. Uh, if you go back just the past few weeks, uh, uh, one of the largest advocates, uh, Elon Musk, was even touting that uh, soon you'd be able to use Bitcoin to buy your Tesla with, and uh, they were they were going to be accepting that currency. And now all of a sudden, he's reversed that decision, which really stopped the steep climb that Bitcoin was having in, in great value over the past couple mm-hmm. of weeks. And then just this past weekend, we've seen just a huge slide. And uh, talk to our listeners a little bit about what you're observing there. Uh, you wrote about it uh, ahead of time. You, you, you had this book already published talking about the fallacy of currencies like Bitcoin and what possibly could happen. And here it is uh, uh, coming true. Well, I believe what Kyle Best says about Bitcoin, that it is an asset, uh, a very volatile asset at that. In some ways, it is it is a lottery ticket. <laughs> it has about the same value as a lottery ticket. Uh, it is a very poor form of currency. You cannot make something a currency that fluctuates so wildly and has so little stability. Now, uh, you know, because you can't price anything based on something that fluctuates like that. Uh, and so it's supposedly it's going to become a currency. I doubt it. Seriously, I think it's an alternative form of investment that uh, some people think is better than gold. I particularly would if I had my choice, I'd rather have the gold uh, because there's at least some intrinsic value to that commodity uh, today. Uh, you know, a cryptocurrency is is supposedly created value because of the limitation on its supply. But that's also a constraint to it ever becoming a valid currency. Uh, Currencies have to contract with the demands in the market, uh, which that's why fiat currencies are created, so they can uh, contract or expand. And so uh, those cryptos and and digital currencies aren't, aren't... they don't fulfill that need. As you know, China just introduced its first ever government-backed digital currency. And I think we're going to see regulation of all these cryptos, that governments are going to have to intervene. The federal banks are already looking for ways to try to control it. Uh, I think they're going to make them illegal. I think it'll be like owning uh, some sort of foreign substance or drug one day. And the people with a lot of Bitcoin are going to be very, very disappointed once the government start to make them illegal. Well, there are five other gray swans that we haven't even touched on. So I really encourage our listeners, uh, pick this up. Seven gray swans, trends that threaten our financial future, uh, written by our guest today, Chuck Bitley. And so I, I cannot encourage you enough. Uh, it is a, it is an easy read. It's a quick read, but it is a very thought provoking read that I think that will uh, take today's headlines and turn them into reality for you for sure. Yeah, we'll have that uh, again. That link will be in the show notes below, so you can just click on that, and it'll take you right to uh, being able to order the book. Before we head into the next segment uh, to round out the Bitcoin discussion, I listened to an NPR podcast the other day, Money Planet, and they were interviewing this gentleman that had bought Bitcoin years ago, and the value was at the, at this point of this interview was astronomical, but he could not remember his password. Uh, to get into his account. And so they were on this like hunt with him to try to figure out what his password was and where he had it stored on what computer. And so uh, it was it was a pretty stressful 15-minute podcast. Uh, that sounds so, like something I would yeah, do. Yeah, so remember your passwords, uh, people. 
But uh, but no. Uh, before uh, we we let you go, uh, what we like to do with our guests is our, our uh, world famous rapid fire question segment, uh, where we get to just know you a little bit better. And my dad is going to lead off with the first question. All righty, Chuck. Best and worst advice that you've ever been given. I would say the worst advice is believe in yourself. Uh, <laughs> I could do, go on and on about that, but it has not worked too well to just believe in myself. Uh, best advice is read the Bible to get to know the author. It took it out of reading it for history, reading it for discipline purposes, reading it for knowledge, but reading it to get to know the author changed everything for me. Wow. I, uh, a friend of mine is a pastor at Austin Stone, uh, one of their campuses the other day, and he, he said a guy was doing a leadership lesson kind of for, for all the, the staff there at Austin Stone, and he used to be Tim Keller's uh, right-hand man up in, up in New York. And he said, the number one question I always get uh, is, how do I become like Tim Keller? He said, it's very simple. Read your Bible every day for 72 years, and you'll be well on your way. Uh, <laughs> and so, so that, is, that is good, good advice. Uh, next question. Who were the most influential people in your life? Well, top of my list is my wife. Uh, I'm often asked who's had the greatest spiritual impact on my life, and they're expecting me to say Tim Keller or John Piper or Chuck Swindoll or Billy Graham. And uh, I say my wife. She is unbelievable. Uh, she reads through the Bible every year of her life, practically every, I mean, since we've been married. So that's more than 40 times. Uh, she knows the Word. She knows the living Word. The, the, she knows the living God. And she's just a great advisor and a great counselor. Back to your point earlier, I think, I can't remember if we were on the air or off the air talking about the guys who were running the, uh, or that's a Larry story, uh, who were, uh, they, they realized their business was their business was failing when they didn't speak to their spouse about their investments. And, uh, they started to turn it around when they started getting their 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 wives in input, even though they the, the women didn't know anything about strip malls. But uh, they they started things started to go better. But she's she's obviously at the top of my list. And then I have friends uh, in other parts of the world. I mentioned Peter Chow, who's had a great impact on my life, giving me more courage. Georgie Nishimura, who's one of the great industrialists, a godly man in. Uh, Brazil, his life verse is Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And he's just a tremendous example of that verse in my life. And so those are some people that have shaped me uh, greatly. Well, Chuck, we've already talked about Zimbabwe, and I know that would be on the list. We've talked about COVID. But in addition to those, uh, what other big events have taken place in your life over this past year? Or it may be one of those. Well, I've had a lot of big events in my life this past year, many of them just fantastic uh, things that uh, could have only uh, been the Lord bringing them about. And I just hope I've given proper credit to Him and uh, certainly tried to deflect anything from what I've done. But one of the great events of my life during COVID was the being forced to stay home uh, for the longest continuous amount of time since we've been married. And uh, right now, I've got a number of friends who are under enormous marital stress because of COVID, because they were forced to be home, <laughs> and it didn't work out very well. Uh, but it's been the opposite for us. I have, I've, I thank the Lord for the time that I've had with my wife to be off the road, to be out of the travel schedule and demands of my life, and to work close to her every day. And I have just, I just cherish that time. 
Obviously, COVID has been devastating on people, whether they've been sick or, or lost loved ones or they've lost their job or career. But God turned that into a blessing in our marriage just to get closer to one another. In fact, uh, we ended up on Focus on the Family. We're coming up on that broadcast in uh, August, just telling a little bit of our story of being complete opposites, having a lot of marriage turbulence early on. Uh, I was a difficult person to be married to, and and God really turned that around. I think Terry Looper, who you've uh, interviewed before, could testify to some of how God slowed him down and brought him closer to his wife. And that's been a big event for us. Wow. Uh, great testimony. Yes. If you have not listened to the Terry Looper episode, make sure you go back and listen to it. That's a, that's a phenomenal story. Well, uh, next question. When was the last time you took a risk and how did it work out? Well, I love that question. I mean, come on. Uh, leaders have some sort of risk every day. Yes, in some yesterday? Way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Every, like doing this podcast, that's a risk. Uh, uh, you know, I'm invested, and so I feel like uh, that qualifies for a daily risk, uh, watching investments go up and down. Uh, but a big one that people maybe can relate to is uh, right after COVID hit, the government announced that there was something called the Paycheck Protection Program, PPP, and that not-for-profits would qualify for it. And so we were qualified to receive a basically a government stimulus that uh, would be a loan, and if we didn't lay anybody off, it would become a gift, a grant from Uncle Sam. And I was pretty concerned that we might not uh, get through COVID uh, intact. Uh, so I went to our board about it. I did a little study in the Scripture, and I recommended to the board that although it's not sinful to take money from the government, there's a lot of examples where that happened in the Bible, that we're tax-exempt, and I thought we shouldn't take money from the government as a tax-exempt organization, and we should trust God. Uh, they voted unanimously in favor of that, and then I had to explain it to our staff that uh, we weren't going to protect their payroll, <laughs> you know, that this is going to be a challenge. And then I wrote a letter about it and released it publicly to pastors and ministry leaders. And it created a lot of interviews because many organizations chose to take it. And I wasn't standing in judgment on them. I just felt like if given the choice, we would trust the Lord. And that was a big risk for us. And I have to tell you that it was one of the better decisions we made during COVID. Uh, we had turned in a budget that our uh, our income would probably be down by 15 to 20 percent based on the impact to businesses. And our income for that year uh, exceeded 25 percent growth over the previous year. So it was <laughs> almost a 40 percent differential. And it could not have compared to what the government was willing to give us. And the Lord was so faithful for that decision. We also were recognized as a shining light. We received a shining light award for that, uh, being public and transparent about our finances and that decision we made. And so that brought a lot of favorable uh, publicity to the organization in, in addition to all of the, you know, the support that came in from it. So that qualifies, doesn't it? That yeah. was wow. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, wow. that definitely qualifies. 
Chuck, I, I am so glad that you have received an award and received recognition because not only was that just a step of faith, it was a step of integrity uh, because of just some of the things that, that you teach and that you believe and a boldness by you and a boldness by your board. And uh, and I'm just so glad that uh, you were able to see that play out in a, in a pretty short period of time. I know it, it, it didn't uh, uh, leave you without sleepless nights for a number of weeks and a number of months uh, before where you started seeing the, the faithful supporters of Crown continue to give. But uh, what a great story. What a great you know, story. How could, I, how could I advocate for other people to trust the Lord fully if we don't? Yeah. Uh, and you talk about something that Larry uh, taught us. Larry used to say, do you trust God or you just say that you trust God? <laughs> uh, that was probably his most iconic question. And uh, we were at that juncture. Are we going to just say that we're trusting him? Are we going to trust him? And I'm so glad that we did. And I'm so proud of our board. Uh, our board uh, they, our board knew that we were going to be hanging out there and vulnerable. And Larry used to say, this ministry belongs to God. If he wants to shut it down, he can. If he wants to keep it going, he can. And we've, we've experienced that. Wow. Wow. The legacy continues. Well, Chuck, how about the best or most meaningful place that you've ever visited? Well, I thought about that one in advance because I've visited so many places. And uh, and for those like yourselves who probably traveled a great deal, I'm sure we could just uh, go deep on that topic. But just a few years ago, God put it on my heart to try to take our ministry into all the landfill communities of the world. And there are thousands of families who live inside a landfill, and that's where they make their living and and, uh I just thought, why don't we see if our work can uh, help them? And so I began visiting landfill communities, and one of the places I visited was in Jakarta, Indonesia, uh, out right outside a city of 20 million people. So imagine a, a, a population of 20 million and the daily amount of garbage that goes into that landfill. And so just in short, uh, it what only God could do. I went there thinking I was going to help, and they helped me. Um, I'm still humbled by it. I couldn't breathe. It smelled so bad. I, But my, uh, my guide asked me not to wear something to cover my face or mouth out mm. of you know, being polite to them. And he put tiger balm in my nose, which burned, but he said, this will keep you from smelling the smell. And uh, when I got into their community and was welcomed by them, uh, they were filled with joy. And they were hard, hard workers and people that uh, I learned from their example to me. And I just realized how much God loves them and how much they love their family and have want a better hope and future for their family. And I, I left there uh, just humbled by the circumstances they live in and yet joyfully loving each other every single day in the midst of that and stewardship uh, lessons that I needed to learn. Uh, stuff we throw away is is survival for them. And they treat it like, uh, with utmost respect, what we would consider garbage. And uh, I, I just have been blessed ever since, and I'm still continuing to try to get our organization into landfill communities. But every time we visit one, we're the ones taking away the lessons. Uh, we're not bringing a lot of lessons to them. 
obviously they need faith and they need the eternal hope that we have. And so I'm working on that, but it's, it's a, a lesson that uh, will never leave me. Chuck, I am so glad you told that story. Um, it really sparked memories of a time when uh, Rhonda and I and uh, Josh was already off at uh, college, and uh, but Jacob and Sarah were still living at home, and we went with our church for a mission trip in northern, uh, northern Mexico. And there was a little girl who came every day to Vacation Bible School, every day. And it was probably about Wednesday or Thursday of the week that we were there. And uh, she told us that the people that normally brought her could not uh, come pick her up, and could we take her possibly home? And so we asked her where she lived, and uh, and 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 she told us that she lived at the dump. And uh, and and we thought perhaps we had misunderstood her uh, at first because she was always so neatly dressed, a smile on her face, just a pleasant, pleasant soul. And we took her to her home. And the smell you've already touched on, uh, you know, uh, constant fires that are burning, the things that are no longer needed, and people making a living by living there at the landfill. And her family uh, was responsible for that particular landfill. That's how they made their living. And it, it, it touched the deepest part of my soul and my heart to see that family so filled full of love living in one of the most foul-smelling places that you can imagine. And yet they found joy, and they had joy in their heart, and they loved the Lord. And yeah, was, amen. You, you and I have had that same experience. And I, I I also remember that the people in Jakarta are not of the Christian faith that live in that community. And uh, Christianity is a minority religion in Indonesia. But they told me that they've been shunned by their uh, their religion. And then it's particularly the Christians who come by and show care and concern and love for them. Hmm. And uh, that was also a, a, a case in point that I haven't forgotten. Again, Christians who are often leading the way, bringing the goodness of God to the world. Hmm. Wow. Wow. Well, that was, that was great. Um, next question. Tell us uh, about or, or describe something that you learned from your parents. Well, my dad started work when he was, I think he told me the other day, I just interviewed my father for three hours, but I think he was nine or 10 years old when he started working outside the home, and he worked full-time till he was 83 years old. He's now 88. Uh, but my dad taught me to uh, enjoy work and enjoy working. He was a tremendous example for us, and we have always enjoyed just having uh, the opportunity to work and to do an excellent job at work. I've never dreaded going to work or tried to get out of work or looked forward to retiring. I've always, I, I was taught to appreciate it. And I appreciate workers. We, uh, we have a worker come to our house and do, uh, we, we've been doing a little remodeling and uh, working around there. I admire their skills. I enjoy talking to them. I just appreciate the fact that we're made in God's image to work and that God himself worked uh, before the fall and that we're not under a curse by going to work. And my dad's just been a tremendous example. I love him so much. I call him almost every day. He's still in Texas. And uh, I benefit from his wisdom 
all the time, even now. I would say maybe more so ever than in my life. That's that's why I so admire what the two of you are doing. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, and I, I hope you recorded those three hours that you spent with Yes, we did it on video. And one of the things that uh, pr- my brother was there with me and he was prompted to ask him if he would look at the camera and speak to his uh, grandchildren individually. Mm. And it is absolutely priceless. They don't know it, but one day they will receive that video clip and uh, it, it's going to just touch their heart. It's You talk about true riches, guys. There's a few things that, uh, you know, when you talk about legacy and inheritance, the words of love and affirmation coming from the top within a family will ripple for generations. I have a feeling portions of that video might be played at some rehearsal dinners coming up <laughs> in, the, in the lives of some of those children yes. and grandchildren, for sure. Well, you talked about work and you talked about jobs. How about the best and worst job that you've ever had? Well, one time when I was uh, in school, I, I, a friend offered me a job and said that he would pay me very well. And uh, I signed up for it. And I was taught by my dad, if you sign up for something, you complete the job and you don't quit. And uh, he had me to uh, do dumpster diving on campus. Oh, and wow. he had a little bit of a hoarding problem. He was a, an adult <laughs> person that... Uh, wanted to me to go through the dumpsters. Now, here I was, a uh, popular guy, and I was digging through the dumpsters on camps, getting paid to do it. And it was one of the most humiliating, difficult jobs I've ever had. I mean, what was so sad about it is uh, he didn't, I don't even know why he wanted, I mean, he wanted mattresses that were thrown out of the dorms. Wow. And he thought he could recycle them into insulation. I mean, he had these crazy ideas. So anyway, I got caught up in that job. It lasted. I, I worked for him for about six months. And my wife still to this day can't believe that I did it. Uh, but I finished my assignment there. I also sold cemetery lots door to door when I was in college. Uh, and if you haven't experience rejection just try that this afternoon <laughs> i i had to i had to develop a sense of humor people would say did you say cemetery lots and i said yeah business is great people are dying to get one and so i mean it it, it was good training but i would never want to do it again wow oh, wow that that both of those uh i think after almost do 50 I win? episodes I, I was about to say i think 50 episodes in that yeah. I, I don't know if I can I can think of I, I think you take both of them. Right yeah, there. I could win first yeah. and second prize, right? Well, yeah. well, oh. well, Jacob. My only wish is is that we would have inter- interviewed Chuck before we had Larry O'Donnell on a couple of weeks ago from Waste oh. Management, and uh, and and, and oh, we could wow. have shared we could have shared with him about uh, about Chuck's entrepreneurial yeah. booming, yeah. Is, booming is business. Is he the founder college. of Waste Management? He was uh, he's the got CEO. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he was, I've he was read the story of their founding. Yeah, that's fin- that's phenomenal. His episode uh, aired uh, today, the day we're recording. Uh, but he wrote a great book on called uh, Management Waste, uh, and it's a, it's a really mm. great read uh, for sure. Um, wow, that was that was awesome. Uh, <laughs> you can't get over it, can you, yeah, <laughs> Jacob? You're trying to recover. You're yeah. taking a long look at me and like, really? Well, I just I think I'm processing that sales strategy. Uh, of door to door. I mean, that just, man, that had to be a beat down. 
Uh, oh just... gosh, it was terrible, and it was in Texas in the heat. And wow. uh, did you know a lot of Baylor guys would go for the summers and do that? Uh, some of it right there in Humble, Texas. I wasn't working there in Humble, where a lot of the Baylor guys went. I, I went to a new territory. I thought I would find a more fertile ground somewhere else. And uh, let me just tell you, I knew I would appreciate my education better after that summer. Yes, yes absolutely, absolutely. Wow. Well, uh, man. All right. Uh, switching gears uh, to books. Uh, uh, what book are you reading right now? Right now, I just finished this week a book called Imagine Heaven by John Burke. It was given to me when I was out at Focus on the Family, and it's about uh, a correlation between near-death experiences and scripture. And it's been super, super exciting to me. I'm also uh, on my nightstand. My wife and I have a nightstand habit. My nightstand is loaded with books, and hers is loaded with books, and we just switch them back and forth. I'm reading a book called The Lessons of History by Will and Ariel Durant, and I don't recommend it, by the way, but okay. I'm reading it okay. because okay. a friend recommended it to me, and it's a tough read, and it rubs me the wrong way a little bit, but it's uh, supposedly one of the best uh, summaries of history ever written or in modern times, so I'm, oh. I'm reading it sort of out of obligation. I'm rereading The Victory of Reason by Dr. Rodney Stark. And then a friend of mine who uh, I just dearly loved, he was uh, uh, editor of Christianity Today and then wrote for the Wall Street Journal, uh, named Rob Mall. Rob wrote a book called The Art of Dying, and he wrote the book and then about, I think, five years later, died in a terrible accident uh, uh, climbing, and uh, his widow sent that book to me as as uh, his friend and i've got it right here and it's next up on my reading list so a wide variety i like to read about economics leadership uh, spiritual growth and uh, odds and ends i love to read well how about in addition to the bible the best book that you've ever read chuck (sighs) i boy the best book I've ever read. I didn't, I just realized I didn't narrow that down. I remember looking at it and thinking, that's like trying to pick your favorite child, right? Right. I, I mean, I read the trilogy about Winston Churchill's life, uh, the wonderful Ch- Manchester trilogy about his life. That had a deep impact on me. I read, uh, um, what's it, uh, about Lincoln's life uh, by Doris Godwin on. Uh, uh huh. On a team of rivals, yes. I learned some tremendous lessons in that book. I've uh, I, I really appreciate uh, C.S. Lewis works, uh, but I, I like to read broadly. And a friend of mine just challenged me just a couple of years ago. Instead of trying to, you know, pile up, you know, your fifty of your favorite books this year, why don't we read a little bit more narrowly? and even recycle some of the ones that have been very, really impactful to us. Uh, That's why I started to go back through Victory of Reason. Um, And so right now I'm not going for uh, quantity as much as quality. Uh, But I I write those down. I used to keep a catalog of them and share little book summaries. But uh, mostly today I'm reading for... Uh, personal growth. I just I read history at night uh, when I get insomnia, uh, too much on my mind. I read history and 
uh, honestly, it takes me out of the present and helps me to relax. And I've been very, very helpful. I've read a number of great history books. That's uh, that's why I said this one is not one of them. <laughs> I'm currently reading The Lessons of History, although others, it's by a Pulitzer Prize winner, and others would probably uh, disagree with me. But uh, anyway, that's that's me and books. Wow. Well, for those of us that love to read, this is always the answer to one of our favorite questions. And yeah. So you have really supplied us some great stuff. Thank you, Chuck. Well, I think I will win on the lightning round, the worst job. I don't think I'm going to win the question of the best book. People are going to be wondering, what did he say? Did he did he have a favorite book? Did he read those books? Or is he just making that up? That's great. Well, uh, rounding out here, final question. Uh, what's next for Chuck Bentley? I'll tell you, it's something that has touched me in the book uh, that I just finished reading called uh, Imagine Heaven. There are people... Uh, and look, I don't want to make a theology out of someone else's experience at all. It's very dangerous. But people describe their life review in heaven. And in their life review, consistently, these are different people, different age groups, different languages, different countries. In their life review uh, before the Lord, they're asked how they treated other people. Not what did they accomplish, what did they put on their resume, but they review how they treated other people. And so 1 Corinthians 13 has become a real focus for me on improving the way that I show the love of God in my relationships with other people. Uh, a few years ago, I was having some tension with one of my teenage boys that was still home, and I pulled out 1 Corinthians 13 and wrote down, love is patient and kind and all those attributes, and I asked him to evaluate me based on that. And I didn't get what I thought I would hear. Wow. It took. It really was a gut punch. Mm. Mm. Uh, and so what's next for me is I'm going to really focus on showing kindness and love to everybody that God puts in my life. I hope I'd be kind mm. to you too and be a friend and be a genuine, caring person about others. And that's a development step for me. I can get really focused on my task and look over the people in front of me at times. And my mother, thats I should have mentioned mom. I just wrote an article on Mother's Day that was published at Fox Business. on uh, I've, I call it My Mother Was Bad With Money. And I talk about all of her foibles with money and how she used it to create friends and to people loved my mother for her generosity. She sent gifts by surprise to the people working in the hospital right up to the end of her life. She'd send a bicycle or an Amazon gift card or dinner uh, tickets to people, her nurses and people take care of them. She'd surprise them with these gifts. And I, I just have to tell you what's next for me is I want to grow more uh, to be like a Christ and loving and being kind and generous to other people. Wow. 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 Humility, Rose. honesty, um, willing to admit we're not perfect. Those are signs of a great leader, Chuck. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well. Chuck, thank you. Thank you. Uh, wow. Thank you so much just for being here today. Uh, thank you for talking to us. Thank you for taking time uh, to talk to us. It's a great honor to, to hear your story and, and all that is being done at Crown Ministries and all of the other organizations uh, all around the world. So thanks for being here today. 
Well, Jacob, thank you. I've read your story and I've read your testimony. I have to tell you, it's meaningful to me. And I thank God for the big dreams he's given you and the capacity he's given you. And if we can help you in any way, let's do it. And thank you, Glenn. You've been so gracious and kind. Uh, You're a, a high achiever a very high achiever and to be interviewed by you is humbling because I feel like I should be doing the questions of you. Well, well, thank you. And, uh, uh, we're, we're both fortunate to, to just to get to sit down and and talk to really cool people. This has been a a fun project for us and we just are continually amazed, uh, and, and just shocked, uh, who, who God lets us talk to. So thank you for being a part of it. Uh, to our listeners, uh, your, your homework is below in the show notes. Uh, please make sure you check out, uh, all of Chuck's social media. We'll have links to crown ministries. We'll absolutely have links to, uh, the book, uh, that he has written and some various other things. So please uh, check out the show notes below. Well said, Jacob, Chuck, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for being with us. Our guest today, Chuck Bentley the CEO of Crown Financial Ministries. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in today. Make sure you subscribe, share our podcast with others, and follow us along on Instagram. And until next time, keep chasing what matters. 